in 2015, basically I was looking for another job and uh, the AOCE came up again. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'd, I'd been in job discussions with the AOCE before, um, but the AOCE was always a, a very difficult employer like most international organizations because the number of jobs is pretty small. Uh, whereas the, the number of applicants is, is very large, uh, given the number of contributing states. But in 2015, I had this uh, massive, say, advantage of um, being a journalist, being a German national who had been, who'd worked in Russia, speaks Russian, and has been to the Donbass and knows uh, a lot about the conflict already. And, uh, and, and secondly, the, the German government at the time, the German foreign ministry, had a program on increasing German nationals. German professionals in international organizations. So I, that was another road of opportunity for me. And I, I managed to get this job in Donetsk as the uh, media focal point of the mission, which is basically there, um, there, the, the local representative of the media office in Kiev. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm the focal point. That's how you would have to introduce introduce yourself well that's what that was that is what is on your business card <laughs> <laughs> okay but actually only on the english one yeah the the russian well we, we obviously had the business card had two sides you know a russian and an english one and the russian side had coordinator for SMI, which is of course a much more say understandable uh, description uh, media coordinator Hey folks, welcome to The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and it's been some time since this podcast last episode. I don't know if uh, this will get picked up by my microphone, but uh, mere feet above my head, just one story up, my son is banging away on a ukulele, or it's like a guitar, but it's like three strings. I don't think it qualifies as a ukulele exactly, but anyway, he's going to town on it, and uh, his two baby siblings are uh, rolling around on the floor. So it's a bit hectic these days at the Rothrock household. And um, honestly, it's the main reason why I have had to throttle back my podcasting, both here and at Medusa. But uh, the show must go on. And so here I am again. On today's episode, I spoke to someone I've wanted to interview for some time, Nicholas or Nikolaus von Twickel, a journalist turned analyst who specializes on the war in eastern Ukraine. Nicholas, he said I could call him Nicholas, even though I guess in German it's Nikolaus, but he's got English blood apparently, so Nicholas will fly. Nicholas is now an editor at the Center for Liberal Modernity in Berlin. And as you heard at the top of this episode, he served as a media liaison officer for the OSCE monitoring mission in Donetsk. In 2020, he co-authored an excellent book with Thomas DeWall, DeWall, Thomas DeWall, Thomas DeWall. Oh, jeez. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> anyway, the book's called Beyond Frozen Conflict, Scenarios 
for the separatist disputes of Eastern Europe. And it looks at the Donbass in Eastern Ukraine. It looks at Transnistria in Moldova, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, and the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Nicholas wrote the chapter on the Donbass, and his expertise is in high demand today, with as many as 100,000 Russian troops mobilized near Ukraine's borders, apparently spoiling for a fight. If you follow me on Twitter, which isn't something I necessarily recommend, you'll know that I'm generally skeptical of U.S. military entanglements in Ukraine. I think it was a mistake to expand NATO to Russia's doorstep, though I acknowledge that the Kremlin misrepresents the supposed promises made in the 1990s. I tend to agree with Russian analysis that says what matters most now is the contemporary perspective from Moscow, which is that the West acted in bad faith and bet foolishly that Russia would never rebound geopolitically to a point that it could challenge NATO. Now, I know that some will counter that, you know, Putin doesn't really care about NATO, knowing that Russia's nuclear deterrence means that the alliance doesn't really threaten Russia's national security. But I think Moscow's concerns are reasonable, at least from Russia's point of view. And I believe that Putin wants to resolve this problem before he's a geriatric, you know, while he's still in power. That's my own personal view and my remote psychoanalysis of the Russian president. In other words, it's not worth it very much. And yet I tweet out these thoughts regularly, understandably enraging people who have either an emotional or a personal investment in Ukraine's future, and probably annoying folks, you know, with area expertise. With that in mind, aware of my own shortcomings on the subject, I reached out to Nicholas to pick his brain about the ongoing debate on Ukraine and Russia's alarming troop mobilization. My take is and always has been that uh, this is not about Donbass. This is about Ukraine. Maybe it's geopolitics. Uh, maybe it's just Russia, you know, and Putin, the imperialist Putin, who, you know, just doesn't, cannot come to terms with the fact that the Soviet Union is no more. And, uh, and obviously Ukraine is the, the biggest prize. I think that's the, you know, the, the center or the, the central element in this conflict. Donbass, I think, it, as when we, we look at the events in 2014, you know, the, the, the Moscow rhetoric was never about Donbass. It was always about Yugovostok, the southeast. And we all know that Yugovostok doesn't mean Donbass. It means everything from Kharkiv down via Mariupol all the way along the Black Sea coast to Odessa. And that is, that is what moved people in Moscow, I would say, um, when, when they realized that uh, Ukraine was going back to a pro-Western government and uh, they wouldn't, at this time, they, they were, they felt they couldn't tolerate this again. And I think uh, what, what happened then was that for various reasons, Russia failed to co take control uh, or to install people they would like, like in Donbass, in, in many cities, like in Kharkiv, Dnipro. Kherson and, and all that. Crimea is a special case, of course, but the idea of having a, a sort of little, in, in the Yugovostok, in, in this whole area, it didn't quite uh, work out. And Donbass remained because of various reasons, which, you know, there is still a lot of work to be done. 
for, say, the international research, Ukraine, uh, Russia, watcher community, uh, wh why it was exactly that Donbass remained the, the only place where they succeeded. You know, maybe that had something to do with Akhmetov or with um, the um, conduct of uh, local oligarchs in, in Kharkiv or Odessa. Uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, the fact that uh, Donbass is simply uh, a working class, very Soviet-leaning uh, region, which is bordering Russia, very close to Russia, very easy to get there, a long border that is not uh, properly controlled. So these sort of reasons, I think, are the, the main, these reasons are the main road that lead you to um, lead us to the situation that we have been facing for seven years now. So do you think it's just, I mean, is it nonsense then when Moscow says that, you know, yes, we have, or, I mean, I don't know if they say, yes, we have troops on the border, but they're, if, when presented with that accusation, they say, oh, well, the, you know, the government in Kiev is amassing troops outside of the Donbass with the intention of, you know, regaining territory or something like that. that and there, there are, I've seen comparisons to, you know, last year's war over the, between Armenia and, uh, and Azerbaijan. And the idea being that, you know, there's concerns that there'll be, that there's hopes for some kind of quick conquest of lost territory or something like this. Is that, is your reading of the situation that that is just nonsense? Ukraine would never attempt that? Because I know that, you know, you've written about how they did gradually kind of grab the gray zone, so to speak, but then they stopped. Is it unrealistic that they would keep going, get a little bit more? The situation that we face now resembles the South Ossetian uh, um, situation in, in a way. Because yes, if Ukraine was governed by someone like Saakashvili, um, then, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, it would, it would be... It may be possible that, that such a scenario could unfold. Fortunately, I would say the, the, those in power in Kiev have been, uh, have been acting a little wiser um, so far and not, you know, um, given in to uh, Russian provocations. As I wrote in the book, and I think this, is, this still holds by far and large, well, the, the situation, the military situation we, we see in Donbass is, is very straightforward. It's this this uh, double deterrence or deterrence on both sides. And, the Ukrainians, they could retake Donbass in a couple of days because, I mean, I didn't see it perfectly well with my eyes, but the, the few things I saw in 2015, 16, they showed me clearly that the, those people who are staffing the, the trenches on the ground, that's by and large a ragtag post-Soviet mercenary force, ragtag army, so to speak. It's not the highly professional troops that you would uh, expect from the discourse um, uh, Russia has uh, occup occupied uh, parts of uh, Ukraine. What is what is happening on the ground is is that the, the true Russian troops, the true Russian regular professionals, they tend to be on Russian soil. They tend to be uh, on the other side of the border. And on, in Donbas, you have this this ragtag army, two armies actually. Uh, one is based in, in Donetsk, the other one in Luhansk. One is called uh, First Corpus, and the second is called the Second Corpus is Russian for Corps. It's the biggest military formation uh, underneath army in, in, in the Russian military. And these two corps are not, not very, not, not terribly uh, powerful, not terribly uh, efficient. Uh, the Ukrainians know that, but the problem is, of course, if the Ukrainians decided to, to retake Donbass, then, of course, the Russians could uh, muster uh, a powerful force within a, a very short period and kick uh, the Ukrainians out again. This powerful force would not be in Ukraine right now, but it could get there in a very short 
time. And we know that, um, in fact, uh, we all know this uh, pretty well right now, um, Russia has actually set up an entire new army, the Eighth Combined Forces Army, which is based in Novocherkask, uh, which is right across the border from Donbass in Russia. And uh, this army actually, according to uh, lots of information, uh, including from the Ukrainian military, of course, this, this army actually commands uh, these two corps, the one in Donetsk and the other in uh, Luhansk. So there's a direct military command uh, down to the, the so-called separatist forces uh, in Donbass. And uh, the, 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 the military integration is, of course, say, the most um, perfect aspect of what the, the Donbass separatists always call, you know, they want integration with Russia, but in the military uh, sense, uh, they already have it. <laughs> it's there. And the command of these corps is, as, as far as we, you know, this is not information that I could prove, but all informed people say, lies in the hands of professional Russian officers who are dispatched from Russia to Donetsk and Luhansk in order to command these corps. The corps, which are made up of ragtag kind of mercenary types. Exactly. Well, there are, there are some, of course, there are some professional officers on, in, the, in the top. And, and maybe in, in some of the, um, the, the Poderas in Elenia, of course, uh, there will always be some, some professional people. And the longer they stay there, the more professional they get. I mean, by now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they're all pretty hardened fighters, and um, there, there's no doubt. I, I believe the, the words of uh, Strelkov, who is the most uh, um, frequent commenter on these, these particular issues, Strelkov, the, the, the Russian um, failed bay officer who, um, who basically started the war in 2014 with his little private militia that invaded in a nightly raid and took control of uh, Slovyansk and Kamatorsk. So there, there is some, some professionalism all, all over the place now, but still the, say, the technical professional equipment and uh, the, the number of professionals is limited. It's, it's quite small. And if you compare it with the Ukrainian forces on the other side of the line of contact, then they are definitely on the losing end. They are, they are much smaller. But if you look beyond the border, if you look to Russia, you'll find so many professional, well-equipped, well-trained troops. That then again, of course, Ukraine is on the on 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 the losing side again. And that is again. And what I was going to say about deterrence. The other thing is, of course, if Russia decides to uh, officially um, uh, take over Donbas and send in a, a large force, then of course the West and, and that was the assumption until the end of last year, the end of 2021. Then the West would uh, respond with um, economic sanctions. You know, they take Russia out of SWIFT or cancel. Um, cancel international um, credit rights. So, so basically the idea was that Russia would be deterred by the, the knowledge that the West would then um, take, more, take up more serious sanctions. And this situation has changed now uh, in the sense that more and more Western policymakers and analysts and, uh, and, and, and Russia watchers have come to the conclusion that Russia is no longer willing and uh, no longer willing to tolerate the, this pro-Western Ukraine. Uh, maybe because they feel that um, with with time and time, the chances of winning back Ukraine, uh, be it with hearts and minds, be it by military means, become less and less. The Minsk II agreement is often referred to as like the, the best option that exists for 
a peaceful resolution or a peaceful resolution, if not to the conflict, then at least to Russia's current kind of, you know, uh, reservations about the situation. What's your, when you hear people say like, we just got to work with Minsk too, it's all we have. What's your response to that? What's your attitude? Do you, do you think, yeah, that makes sense? Or do you think Minsk too is a non-starter, doesn't mean anything anymore? So I think the answer evolves over time. Um, if you asked me this question five years ago, now I'd tell you straight away, yeah, that's it. You know, Minsk, Minsk uh, is Minsk. That's the only option we have. And that's the only road uh, out of this conflict uh, without any war. In a way, it's like uh, vaccination against coronavirus. You know, there's, there's no other way out. Now we've 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 had so many years uh, passing, and in, in fact, if I may keep to the coronavirus analogy, um, we've seen new um, new variants coming in, and uh, it's become more and more difficult. And um, basically, the, the problem with Minsk, the problem with the package of measures, is of course the political parts. The political parts, and that was clear from the onset, are so cumbersome. And so hard for Ukraine politically to, to carry out, to implement that even in back in 2016, you know, in the say mid days of Poroshenko, it, it would have been, it would have taken a big amount of political will to, to implement it. And I think what uh, in, in a nutshell, you know, what we saw was in, I don't know whether it was in 16 or um, I think 15, 16, when the Poroshenko government faced violence on the streets, you know, there was a hand grenade that was detonated uh, in Kiev, killing, I think, two, two or three people by protesters who were against the Minsk agreement, uh, you know, calling it treason. And, and by that time, I think the, the, the government in Kiev realized that it doesn't really want to implement these political terms, at least at that given time. I mean, there's also Russia not wanting to implement that. That's totally clear. Uh, on the other side, I mean, we, we shouldn't forget that the Minsk agreement, especially uh, its February 2015 part, i.e. what I call three, what most people call two, i.e. the package of measures, was signed under duress. And the duress was the Debaltsevo kettle, uh, where the Russian, very regular Russian forces uh, retook this town and kicked out the Ukrainian forces that were trying to hold it. And these were the terms under which Poroshenko, he didn't even sign it himself, but he, he, he ordered his people to sign it. As did Putin, you know, Putin didn't sign. The, the, the Minsk agreement is one, one problem with it. it. It's not even an international contract. You know, it's not, not ratified by parliament or anything. It's just uh, an agreement that is made by representatives of the heads of states. <laughs> it's not in international law. It's not particularly binding anyway. So, so there are lots of uh, problems. And of course, the, the highest hopes for implementation, they came back after the election of Zelensky in uh, 2019. And, and Zelensky did take off with a lot of political capital and a lot of hopes um, of him um, pushing forward. And he was viewed as more, more dovish or whatever, right? He was considered... Well, I wouldn't call it dovish, but certainly more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. um, I remember a German diplomat saying um, that, uh, you know, now the, uh, the dogmatic era of Poroshenko has ended and now there's a more pragmatic leadership in Kiev. Is that still the view? Is Zelensky's scene is still pragmatic because he's just come up against obstacles then yes i mean i mean the the i mean zelensky is still the same person and the people who surround him and say uh, decide his policies they are also more or less the same um 
but I would say that, you know, the basic troubles are also unchanged, the basic troubles from what is written in the Minsk agreement. You know, he, he still has to deliver the same unsavory uh, elements in this uh, agreement um, that were written down in 2015, allowing some sort of local elections in Donbass where nobody can even agree on how to be, how to hold them with an OSCE mission uh, monitoring them, where the Ukrainians say from the onset that they will never, this can never work out. And in, in fact, you know, even, even if you disregard some of the Ukrainian arguments that are being made all the time, it's perfectly clear from, from a completely neutral uh, standpoint, if you understand what is happening inside these people's republics, that it is absolutely inconceivable that any sort of form of, um, say, proper democracy or even uh, accountable democratic development can actually take place. I mean, one thing about this whole conflict that is, I think, um, completely um, underreported over the past years is that Russia has, unlike in all the other in all the other territorial conflicts that we have, you know, Moldova, Georgia, that in the Donbass, they have really set up cruel and cruel regimes that do not, that, that torture their people and that, that have some really, really Stalinist sides to it. Something that has not been the case, not even in the worst time in Abkhazia or, or South Ossetia, um, and certainly not in Transnistria. Um, this has never happened before in these sort of conflict. But the, the sort of military dictatorship rule that takes place in Donetsk and Luhansk since 2014-15, you know, is something that is unseen and unheard of in all the former uh, Soviet lands, so to speak. And that is something that, that really one shouldn't forget. Um, and that is something that obviously fuels the intensity of this, um, not just conflict, but of the debate um, that happens outside the conflict, as, as far as even the debate of uh, among Russia and Ukraine watchers on, say, Twitter. So does that mean that, it, for, I mean, so, sometimes so, some of the commentary I've heard from people that are pro-Kremlin, some of the attitudes that I've seen are, you know, you hear from the the West and from Kiev itself, like that, 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 you know, they're taking into account the Ukrainians' perspective, but Russia is the only one defending the people of the Donbass or whatever. But you're you're telling me that you go if you go there, you talk to people that know a lot about it, that's a deeply cynical interpretation because, in fact, the people there are essentially under police state, and the best thing for them would be to be liberated. Well, more than, there's always one, more than one answer, unfortunately. If you were asked the question, <laughs> uh, is the best thing for the people of the Donbass in the occupied, in the separatists occupied, etc. territories, is it to be liberated and, and return to control under the government in Kiev? Like with that, from a human rights perspective, because the way you described the DNR and the LNR, it's, you know, they're like near Stalinist states. Presumably nobody's enjoying that. But at the same, I mean, does that mean that these people are essentially prisoners? Like, like with all Stalinist states, uh, in and and uh, you know, I'm 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 talking, I'm, I'm speaking from Berlin, and Berlin certainly the eastern part used to be the capital of the GDR, another Stalinist state. Um, you know, they always uh, they can always usually uh, rest on the support of maybe not a, an outright majority, but of a. Significant parts of the population. It's not necessarily full-fledged support, but at least if the majority of the population is, you know, more or less happy 
and uh, and not necessarily concerned about you know, opposition politics and poverty, uh, then then these systems they can go on for quite some time. I mean, look at North Korea, look at Turkmenistan, and all these countries. So so with with Donbas, of course, things are not that easy. We know this uh, perfectly well. I mean, look at uh, Russian state media, uh, look at the the television program that you know many Russians consume, and which are of course consumed also in Donbas. You know, um, it's not outright brainwash, but it goes into that direction. It's it's not that. I mean, yes, from a human rights perspective, it, it would be right. It would be the best thing if if these countries were liberated. But then again, um, we should be absolutely clear that, and and this is something you know that's uh, morally deeply troubling and and deeply uh, problematic. That um, it is hard to see in the current, say, the current way Ukraine operates or the Ukrainian political debate uh, versus Donbass operates, that a liberating force, you know, if it, if it was allowed to, to, to retake Donbass, you know, would it be benign and, and open arms, invite everybody back into the Ukrainian political system? Of course not, you know. Of course, there would be a huge, you know, a huge amount of um, hatred, a huge amount of, um, say, uh, motivation to of revenge to those who who were in charge of these regimes. You know, be they Russian or be they Ukrainian. Um, most of the officials that we know of uh, right now in Luhansk and Donetsk are not Russian; they are uh, locals. So there's a large, you know, a pretty large number of collaborate collaborants, as the Ukrainians like to say, uh, with whom, of course, um, you know, uh, the question is, um, you know, what, what to do with them? I'm, I'm sure Russia would immediately evacuate uh, the most prominent of them, but uh, there still um, there will be, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, that would still be around and that would maybe face, you know, a difficult situation and uh, how the new uh, government, Ukrainian authorities would deal with them. I mean, this is what uh, Putin is, of course, alluding to when he says, you know, he doesn't want to have a second Srebrenica in Donbass. Um, this is not about, you know, not the silly genocide talk, but it's just that this conflict that was that was created by and large by Russia has now, through Russian efforts over seven, eight years, reached a situation where it's just impossible to solve with very easy means. Like if I say if the Ukrainian government came back, took back control by civil military means, um, we would face a huge task of reconciliation, of reconciliating the two sides. And, and that is the fact of life, I think, that uh, many uh, people know about, but few people like to speak about. The same is on the other side, of course. You know, if Putin was to, or that Russia was to take military uh, control parts of Ukraine now, what is now, you know, very much in, in, in the public sphere and the public debate during the last weeks. We, we all know that the Russians can do that militarily, but we don't know how they will manage actually politically, how they will set up control over these swaths of uh, Ukrainian uh, territory that are so far, you know, part of uh, free Ukraine. And if we look at the experience in Donbass, we can see that, you know, even in this proletarian sort of Soviet-style, Soviet-leftover Donbass, which always was an area inside Ukraine that was pretty isolated. That's something I learned about uh, Donbass in, in, in these years, that in, in pre-2014, Donbass was a, a region that had different media, uh, a different way of life from Kiev and from the rest of Ukraine. People were really focused on their local 
there was a lot of local focus and uh, very little less integration with Kiev than there should have been, put it that way. And, and even here in this Donbass, Russia had huge trouble in setting up uh, political control. I mean, look at the early history of the Lugansk People's Republic. It, is absolute, it was absolute carnage. They had to kill field commanders by the dozen. They had to kill people every month um, because they had so much insubordination all over the place. And if you, if you look, if Russia was to take uh, control of the Kharkiv uh, Oblast tomorrow, I don't want to know how many field commanders will <laughs> prop up there and uh, who, who, who Russia will at some point um, have to uh, reckon with. You've been listening to The Russia Guy. On today's episode, you heard from Nicholas von Twickle, Nikolaus. <laughs> I'm not going to let it go. He's a former media liaison officer for the OSCE monitoring mission in Donetsk, and he's now an editor at the Center for Liberal Modernity in Berlin. Please check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to his Twitter account where you can read his book, Beyond Frozen Conflict, and it's absolutely free. The book's available for free as a PDF. It's very cool. Now I'm going to give you my Patreon spiel, and I realize this is a big ask for a podcast that airs so infrequently, but I am still accepting contributions at Patreon, and now via Spotify as well, actually, because I've moved the hosting of this this podcast to Spotify, or it's to Anchor FM, technically, but Spotify owns it. And I've, I, have, I have put billing on hold for the past few months, but I'll likely reactivate it this month as I'm trying to do more episodes, but uh, we'll see how well that works as there are only so many hours in the day and so many children in my house. Um, <laughs> but if you're able to contribute, or if you've been doing so already, and there are many of you out there who have, you have my many thanks. I've, uh, I've been doing this show for three and a half years now, and I'm not quitting, even if that means slowing down my releases, you know, until all of my kids are in daycare. And uh, it'll be months still before that happens. Uh, but uh, stay tuned, and until next time. Говорят мы пяки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.